Well, hello again, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Uh, I'm happy to announce before we get started that as of this episode, um, which is episode five in our series, Meet the Aquanics is now sponsored by Audible.com. As part of this sponsorship, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a 30-day trial so you can check out the range of titles that they're offering. Currently, Audible has over 180,000 books to choose from for either your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. To help support this podcast, please go to www.audibletrial.com slash And now, on with our next episode. Okay, hello everyone. Um, we're here again for another episode of the podcast. I'm still in Banff at this wonderful little conference that we're at, and sitting with me is uh, Professor Anne Broadbent from the University of Ottawa. So thanks, Anne, for sitting down for a half an hour while we do this. Thanks for having me. So... Much like our last uh, conversation with Krista at Microsoft, you come at this quantum computing stuff from uh, the computer science world, right? Yeah, I come from computer science and discrete math. And where did you sort of start delving into this? Was it halfway through grad school? I took my first quantum computing course in, uh, in my last year of undergraduate. And that was at Waterloo? That was at Waterloo. It was the second time ever that they were teaching quantum computing at the university. And what attracted you to this? Um, I wanted to do cryptography, and there was this whole new dimension of quantum cryptography that I found very, very mysterious and interesting. Mm-hmm. And then when you've sort of kept going from that, and you're sort of most well known for, for building in cryptography into computation, something called blind quantum computing. So roughly, what is this? Blind quantum computing is a way to delegate a private quantum computation. So we imagine a, uh, a picture where we have a client-server scenario, and the server being a full-fledged quantum quantum computer, and having uh, the client having remote access to the computer, and being able via some uh, simple interactions, being able to drive a quantum computation uh, while maintaining privacy. Right. So the the computer, the server, what so have it doesn't actually know what you're doing. Uh, correct. It, this is a way to hide the computation and it also to hide the data if you wanted to. Right. Now, we have encryption in classical. I mean, how, how is this different? I mean, is this the same as just encrypting data or is there something fundamentally different about this? At the high level, it's, it's about encrypting data and we have also uh, methods in classical computation, but the difference is the model. The, the, the wonderful thing about the quantum information is that we can separate quantum computational power from classical computational power. Mm-hmm. And so, so then you can consider clients that are classical computers and servers that are quantum computers. So this opens up a whole new dimension of um, delegating computations. Right, right. And you can't do this classically. There's no, there's no analog to this about not only hiding your data, but also hiding what you're trying to do. There are those analogs and there are solutions, but they, they achieve computational security at best. Um, but they're also in a different model because they, they don't have the separation of quantum, which is classical. Obviously, they only have classical models to consider. Mm-hmm. So you've used this term computational security. I mean, this seems to be a bit of a technical term. Oh, okay, yes. So let me, let me specify that computational security is security that's limited by the computational power of the adversary. So we assume that there are problems that are infeasible for the adversary. The difference, um, for instance, blind quantum computing achieves information theoretic security, meaning that it's going to be secure no matter 
what um, are the powers of the um, adversary. Right, so basically the idea is that the adversary could be God and it still couldn't yes. break it. Yes, it's unbreakable in not only in practice but also in theory. Right, right, right. So how does this fold in with sort of the development of, of quantum computers in general? Because there, there's been quite a lot of hype about this uh, as being... Uh, so it's certainly not something that we could do tomorrow, but one of one of what they call the killer apps of quantum computing. So how do you see it fitting in within the framework of other algorithms, quantum simulation, stuff like that? It's um, very relevant given the architecture that we imagine uh, in the short to medium to long term for quantum computers, where we imagine that there'll be computers, quantum computer, computers available only in very specialized centers. Um, so we don't have the home quantum computer yet, yet we still want to benefit remotely from the uh, computational powers that we could possibly access here uh, with blind quantum computing. You can access them um, uh, while maintaining privacy of the computation. Right, so obviously people these days more than ever are concerned about privacy. Um, now, a lot of people, when they talk about quantum computing and when I see this stuff printed in the press and comments that you see, people always are fixated on quantum computers are going to break our encryption. It's going to kill off privacy. But your arm of this, what you work on, is actually, yes, we're going to kill encryption in one way, but we're going to replace it with even better encryption on the other side. Is that a fair thing to say? Um, well, the, the blind, since you mentioned the breaking, uh, breaking privacy, the blind quantum computing could be used indeed to run algorithms such as Shor's factoring algorithms while maintaining privacy. For instance, oh, uh, there would be um, it would be private which um, number you're trying to factor, so it would be private who you're trying to eavesdrop on. Um, there's another branch of quantum cryptography that looks at uh, solutions to replace our traditional uh, public key cryptography, so the, 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 the techniques that are used currently over the internet and that rely on computational assumptions. So this is called quantum key distribution. It's one of the most uh, researched areas in quantum cryptography. And indeed, using quantum information, we're able to uh, provide a sol uh, an alternative that will be information theoretically secure, so unbreakable based on the laws of physics, not on computational assumptions. Right, right. So, with your group at, at Ottawa, what do you sort of focus on now, sort of on a day-to-day -day basis? What are the problems you're tackling? We are redefining security in, for a world with quantum computers. Redefining, finding what are the new challenges and what are the new solutions. Um, so that when, at the advent of when the quantum computers, because it's not a question of if, but it's a question of when, mm -hmm. we will have the tools for our um, information infrastructure so that we can remain functional and possibly even take advantage of the quantum phenomenon or to improve our security. So, if you've been more specific, what, what does that mean? I mean, the lay person's not terribly, certainly not well-versed in this kind of stuff. So, I mean, could you give sort of a, I don't know, even if it's not an exact analogy or a breakdown on, as to what that entails? I mean, why do we have these things to begin with? I mean, we talked about standards uh, a couple of weeks ago with, with Jared from Melbourne, but he was talking standardised, you know, units of measure and standardised things for the metre and the second. Is it sort of the information equivalent of this? 
Well, we're certainly not working on standards, but we're working on the underlying theory that would eventually become standards. So what type of new protocols do we need to look at, given that quantum information is a reality? For instance, um, how are we going to even encrypt quantum data? Um, how are we going to um, protect quantum data from modifications? Even also other applications like how can we take advantage of the no cloning principle of, of quantum information in order to create um, things like quantum money, which are unfor unforgeable um, banknotes that also seem to provide some level of security beyond what we can achieve with um, conventional methods. So I'm going to diverge here because quantum money, that sounds interesting. Yeah, it is. Go a bit more into that. So the, the, no, cloning, the no cloning principle in quantum information says it's not possible in general to take uh, a quantum state and make a second copy of it, a perfect copy of it. So um, the quantum money takes advantage of this by creating banknotes, also sometimes called subway tokens, that are unforgeable, not at the level of physical, uh, not at the level of the difficulty of reproducing the physical object, but at the intrinsic level of difficulty of cloning the quantum information. Right, so it's basically a quantum watermark, and because quantum mechanics doesn't allow you to copy things, it's by definition uncopyable. Yes, and not only that, but if you try, if there's an attempt to copy, it will actually destroy it. So that would, that would be a deterrent to any type of attempt at counterfeiting. Right. So, I mean, obviously, considering you know, many people have seen pictures of sort of prototype quantum computers, you know, this is a bit pie in the sky because the actual technology to do this isn't really readily embeddable into a banknote. But, I mean, are people considering this, or is this still just sort of, in principle, we could do this at some point in the future when the technology becomes small enough, fast enough, cheap enough, etc.? I would say it's very much in principle because uh, we're talking about quantum memories, which are uh, really in their infancy right now in terms of building these things. So it's about being ready, as I said, for when the technology is available, that we know what uh, tools we'll be able to implement. Okay. So I've done this with everybody. I ask people to see or predict where they think things are going to happen technologically in the next five to ten years. And then we'll come back, hopefully, if we're all still around in five or ten years and figure out who got it right. So in terms of your specific work and how your work relates to the field and also the technology development, I mean, what would you be your predictions in the next five years, ten years? In the next five to ten years, we're going to hear a lot more about... Um, retooling our current um, information infrastructure so that it's secure against quantum attacks. So this is what is called post-quantum cryptography. Uh, that is finding alternatives to our current public key infrastructure that um, withholds um, attacks by quantum computers. So I think that's going to be become almost common um, everyday household terms that people will hear if they're working in, in, uh, in information in IT. Um, and that's because we have more and more evidence that um, the factoring algorithm is going to become more closer to being a reality and we, we need to um, 
even though a full-scale quantum computer might be more than 10 years ahead, uh, away, we need to protect our current information because it can always be stored and attacked in the future. So, um, so the reality is that we need to look at that today. And I think in five to 10 years, hopefully we'll be ready uh, and have implemented these post-quantum secure so systems. Are there techniques, like if, if there are people listening who are in the IT sector or the security sector, are there techniques that you could either say have been proven or are strongly suggestive to be resilient against this new generation of quantum technologies? Yes, there are techniques and they're currently being standardized is my understanding um, that are called lattice-based cryptography, uh, code-based cryptography, and um, That's right. um, so uh, however we still need a lot more research on what types of quantum attacks could be possible um, and we need so we need more uh, work on quantum cryptanalysis in particular to understand what are the parameters that we really need in order to uh, have security. Okay, so at the very least it looks as though classical security can be maintained in this new world, just we're going to have to rethink some of the protocols and techniques that are actually pretty widely used, so yes. we're going to have to change things quite a bit. Yes. Okay, um, so we might as well wrap it up soon, but as I ask every guest, is there anything you want to plug going on in Ottawa? Uh, going on in Ottawa, we have a um, very uh, exciting group and a growing group um, that are working on um, extremely important questions in quantum cryptography. Uh, it's really, um, um, yeah, I encourage people to keep up to date on the on the things that are going on. Uh, really cool things that are coming up are things like uh, quantum homomorphic encryption, possibly quantum obfuscation. Um, all kinds yeah, of stay, stay tuned. Yeah, yeah. Or just go study at Ottawa. Of course, <laughs> of course. We're looking for uh, motivated and bright uh, students and postdocs, um, for sure. Wonderful. Well, thanks for sitting down for doing this for a couple of minutes, and hopefully people will get some idea of what's going on when it comes to quantum cryptography and quantum key distribution and all this other stuff that I only passably understand. Uh, so that's it for this little episode from here. Um, maybe I'll talk to somebody else and upload this, but otherwise, please share this on iTunes, share it on SoundCloud, and thanks again for listening. Cheers.